Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Our sermon in our Johannine sermon series this morning is committed to the task. Committed to the task. The task, as we shall see this morning, is the cross for our Christ. There's so many different ways that you and I could look at what happens on Calvary, what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. In fact, books have been written literally about what Paul might teach about the crucifixion or the cross. This morning, for a moment, I want to look at the cross through the eyes of the Apostle John. What does he teach us here in John chapter 12 about the event, the culmination of the story of the Christ in his crucifixion on the cross? This morning, I'm going to give you John's comments on the cross. John's comments on the cross. This morning, maybe we can see the crucifixion event with new eyes and hear the story with new ears because we see a nuance from John the Apostle. Well, preceding our story in John 12, We've had the miraculous story of Jesus calling his friend Lazarus to come forth from the tomb. He has called his friend back to life. But instead of rejoicing, the religious authorities are even more threatened now by this wonder worker named Jesus. While the chief priests the Pharisees enjoyed the status quo of the Roman Empire. So anything that might threaten their comfortable position, well, was scary to them. Look at chapter 11 and verse 53. After the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, speaking of the religious authorities, John eleven fifty-three. From that day on. They planned together to kill him. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. In John's gospel, the event that makes the cross inevitable is the calling forth of Lazarus from the tomb. When they realized that everybody would go after Jesus because of his power, even over death, there's no way to stop a man who can raise the dead unless you kill him himself. And so, after the popularity of Jesus, from the calling forth of Lazarus from the dead, from that day on, they determined kill him. Chapter 12 continues the story about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. In fact, it is right at Passover time. And Mary actually, you remember the story, she anoints the feet of Jesus. She wipes his feet with her hair. She fills the whole house with the fragrance of the sacrifice of the anointment to anoint Jesus. Jesus reminds her, look at 12.7, reminds us, let her alone. Some had said that spending so much money to anoint his feet was a waste. Why couldn't you give 
the money to feed the poor. Let her alone. In other words, she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let her anoint me. She is preparing me for my burial, Jesus says. Well, look at 12, 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went out to him and met him, began crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Here we have that triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And in John's gospel, we've had several trips to Jerusalem. and the other gospels, we have but one trip. And this is that one trip, that trip where he's crucified. The crowds had seen him in Bethany raise Lazarus from the dead, and so they have, are so excited that the long-awaited Messiah has actually arrived. Someone with power, even over Rome, would overthrow their enemies, the Roman occupational government, and restore the power to Israel. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, You see, you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, I want you to look at the word world. Didn't say ancient Israel has gone after him. Didn't say the Jews are going for Jesus. But no, the Pharisees look, and there's so much popularity now with Jesus, they have to kill him. They've already decided that. I want you to look. The whole world is chasing after Jesus. Well, we find out in verse 20 through 23, the hour has finally come. Look at verse 20 through 23. Now, there were certain Greeks... Now, did you notice the whole world has gone after him, verse 19? And then who goes after him in verse 20? Not Jews, you see this, but certain Greeks. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These, therefore, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus and Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Greeks are now not the Jews. The Gentiles, the Greeks, are seeking Jesus. Now, these are God-fearers. They're not circumcised, but they love the festivals of the Jews, and they're actually going to Jerusalem for the Passover. They fear the God of the Jews, and they celebrate his acts of redemption. They see him as the way of salvation. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And now we see the Greeks who say, the Greeks say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The Greeks want to see 
Jesus. And then he says, the hour has come. Now, I wish we had a record of that conversation between our Lord and the Greeks, and what did he say to them, and what did they ask, and why did they want to see Jesus? We're not told any of that. What we are told is that the fact that the Gentiles are now seeking him is a sign to Jesus that his hour has come. His hour has actually come. The whole world is going after him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have forever life. The world, John 3, 16, has come true. The world is coming after him, and Jesus says, it's a sign. My hour has arrived. Now, interesting of the 12 disciples, why did they pick Philip and Andrew to go to. Well, Philip and Andrew have Greek names, and it may be that they were more comfortable with the Greek culture or the Greek language, but at any rate, the Greeks pick the two disciples with Greek names and go to them and say, we want to see Jesus. Now we know that the nations themselves, not just Israel, but the nations themselves are seeking an audience with Jesus. And now the hour has arrived. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 4, back to, to John 2 and verse 4. Do you remember this first miracle in John's gospel, the turning of the water into wine? Do you remember that we discovered that Mary was probably kind of the, the hostess? She was in charge of the wedding reception, and she was running out of wine. You remember she goes to her son, Jesus, and says, hey, they're giving out of wine. And Jesus says to her in chapter 2, verse 4, woman, what do I have to do with you? In other words, I'm on a sacred calendar, not a secular calendar. And look what he says, my hour has not yet come. Throughout this gospel, Jesus keeps telling us, it's not time yet. No, not now. Turn over to chapter 7. So in chapter 2, 4, my hour has not come. Well, in chapter 7 and verse 6, you remember his brothers are trying to get him to go up to the festival before his time. They want him to open up his bag of tricks and get arrested. His brothers are not in good relationship with Jesus at this point in the story, though they eventually call him Lord. But in chapter 7, verse 6, look at verse 5. His brothers were not believing in him, but verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet at hand. I can't go up to Jerusalem and do the things you want me to do because it'll lead prematurely to my crucifixion, and it's not time for that to happen yet. My time has not yet come. Look at verse 8. He says the same thing again, same chapter. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Well, then look at verse 30 of chapter 7. Verse 30 of chapter 7. He eventually goes up, not at the command of his brothers, but on his own accord. 
And the religious authorities are seeking to seize him and kill him. Look at verse 30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because, look at this, his horror, his hour had not yet come. So chapter 2, chapter 7, throughout this gospel, we're told his hour is not here, his time is not come, his hour is not here. And so now back to chapter 12. So in chapter 12, having read through the gospel of John, you know when he says in 1223, the Greeks are seeking me, this means the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then you know his time for the passion of our Lord. The first thing we see in John's comments on the cross is this. The cross is Jesus' glorification despite being a place of shame. The cross is Jesus' glorification despite being a place of shame. When Jesus realizes that his hour has arrived, his first comment is, the Son of Man will be glorified. Now, hour means more than just crucifixion. It means resurrection. It means ascension. It means enthronement at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's saying, the time for the crucifixion is here. The grand irony of the gospel is this. The hour of the glorification of the Son of Man is made manifest on the cross, the place of humiliation and shame. The cross is Jesus' glorification, despite the fact that it is a place of shame. There's a second thing we see that John comments on the cross. The cross creates life from death. The cross creates life from death. Well, look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is a, a metaphor of a seed being planted in the ground, Jesus being placed into the tomb is akin to the language of Paul in Romans 6 where he says, we must die with Christ. And if we die with Christ, likewise, we rise with Christ. That is a great part of the paradox of the gospel. It is this, that God most often saves his people through death rather than from death. That God most often saves his people for forever life, not by saving them from death, but allow them to go through death to reach eternal life. The Son of Man himself must go through death to get to eternal life, like the seed planted in the ground. When you and I stand by the graveside of a family member, God has not been defeated. We have not been deserted. The seed has been planted so that as it dies with him, likewise, it will rise with him. 
When the farmer plants a seed, he doesn't mourn that he's lost a seed, but rather he looks forward to the new life that comes from the seed planted in the ground. Through the death of the son, the father gains many children. Look at verse 24 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, Jesus must die. Because if he doesn't, he'll remain alone. But if he does die, he will bear much fruit. He will bear much fruit. There's a a third thing John says about the cross. The cross calls us to join our Christ in suffering. The cross calls us to join our Christ in suffering. Look at 25 and 26. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am there, my servant also shall be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to follow him to the cross. Loving life and and grasping this life as a self-defeating process in that such love destroys the very life that it seeks to retain. Compared to how we look forward to eternal life and life in the kingdom, well, the antithesis of love is hate. Compared to our love for the kingdom ahead, we are to actually hate this life because we are to follow him in death, and thus we follow him in eternal life. But be forewarned, to be where the Lord is, is to be at our Lord's passion. To be where our Lord is, is to be at his point of suffering. Here's a, a fourth thing, fourth new way to see the cross through the eyes of the Apostle John, and that's this. The, cro- the cross causes a troubled heart in our Jesus The cross causes a troubled heart in our Jesus. Look at verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. My soul has become troubled. More than any other gospel writer, it is John the Apostle who gives us the most divine Jesus. It is in this book, at the hand of the pen of the Apostle John, where Jesus, well, we don't even learn about his birth as a baby, do we? We learn that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a very big Jesus in John. And yet... Even in the gospel with the biggest Jesus of the four, the Word became flesh, 114, and dwelt among us. But the Word became flesh, flesh, and dwelt among us. Jesus knows what it means for his hour to arrive. He knows that it involves the crucifixion. And even as he is fully human and fully flesh, he is troubled over the pain that is before him. Now, 
What else do you not have in the Gospel of John? You do not have an account of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus asked for this cup to pass from him, and, but not my will, but your will to be done. You remember that in the other Gospels, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus actually prays so fervently, prays to the point of blood. If there's any way to avoid the cross, but not my will, but your will, this little verse is John's Gethsemane. His heart is troubled. What am I going to do? Can I say, Father, take this hour? The hour has arrived. Look at the use of the word hour again. Father, save me from this hour? No, because not my will, but your will for this very purpose, the crucifixion, the payment of sin, I have come. The hour must be passed through. In all of his humanness, but for a moment, Jesus is shrinking away from the pain of the crucifixion, but it ends with, this is your will, your purpose, and I will do it. There's an absolute air of inevitability about the cross in John. Well, I want you to look at verses 27 and 28. Now, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say to my Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I, I came to this hour. And then verse 28. Father, glorify your name. The language used there is a one event. Do that one thing, O God, that glorifies your name. That one thing that glorifies God is the obedience of the Son to the cross. When he says, Father, glorify your name, he's saying, I don't, I'm not looking forward to it. The pain looks awful. But do what you must to glorify your name. Yet the fifth thing we see from John on the cross is this. The cross represents the ultimate obedience by the Son thus glorifying the Father. The cross represents the ultimate obedience of the Son thus glorifying the Father glorify your name. There's that thunderous voice from heaven that replies to the request. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven, verse 28, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying an angel has spoken to him. As you read Scripture, I know you've realized that when we have a thunderous voice for heaven, sometimes certain ears hear and other he ears don't hear. Why, why those who heard the Father speaking from heaven, that thunderous voice, some heard thunder and others heard the voice of an angel, much like when Saul, on the road to Damascus, has the bright light and hears the voice. Some heard, but they didn't understand. Some saw, but some didn't hear. The people who could not comprehend the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among them. God spoke in John's gospel in these last days by having the Word put on flesh, the Word that created the cosmos put on flesh. 
And those who could not comprehend the word standing before them in flesh could also not comprehend the very voice of the Father as it thundered from heaven. Because they had missed the mission, they had missed the Messiah. There's another thing we hear from John in his comments on the cross. The cross means judgment on the world and the prince of this world. Verse 31, the cross means judgment on this world and judgment on the prince of the world. Look at verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I myself will be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate by what means he would die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ has remained forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crucifixion is the great divide it represents salvation to those who call Jesus Lord is the hour of glorification for the Son. And yet for those who reject the Word and the flesh, it is a moment, it is the hour of judgment. Now judgment is upon this world. The hour has arrived and judgment is upon the world. And now not just the world, but the prince of the world himself will be cast out. That's a paradox, isn't it? When Jesus is on the cross, it looks for a moment as if evil has won the day. When Jesus is on the cross, it looks like Satan has been victorious, that the one who threatened him has been stopped in the cruelest of ways. And yet the paradox is the very thing that appears to be the victory for the power of evil and the evil one himself actually becomes judgment upon evil and judgment upon Satan. Satan is, is cast out. The cross is the enthronement of the Christ and the dethronement of the devil. The cross is not the throne or the crown that the crowd had in mind when they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When they're welcoming their king, they imagine a different kind of throne and a different kind of crown, but in a paradox of God that no one could ever have imagined, it is, that is his throne. The thorns are his crown, and he dethrones Satan in the process. He says there, if I, draw, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Going back to the Greeks who are seeking Jesus, if I be lifted up, if the Son of Man is lifted up, you remember what he said in chapter 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If I am lifted up, I will draw, not the Jews only, but I will draw all men to me. It is the cross that calls 
men to the Christ. That double meaning to be lifted up, to be crucified, to be gloriously resurrected, and then to be enthroned and actually seated at the right hand of God. In John 8, 28, we read, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When you lift up the Son of Man, when crucifixion comes about, when the hour has arrived, at that moment you will know I am the one. But the crowd, look at verse 34. Now wait a minute. We saw you call Lazarus up from the grave. We We've seen you give sight to the blind. And, and we know in Psalms and in the prophets that the Messiah abides forever. We've heard out of the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Now, I want you to notice this. They knew for sure what lifted up meant. They knew it meant crucifixion. How can you say you'll be crucified? Because, no, 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 no. We've read the Old Testament, and we know that the Messiah endures forever. How can you say? Maybe they're referring to Psalm 89 or Psalm 110 or Isaiah 9 or Daniel 7, where the Messiah is everlasting and abiding. How can you say, then, maybe you're not the Son of Man after all? Who is a Son of Man? This is not what we signed up for. When we shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, we were calling you to be our everlasting king. And now you speak as if you're going to go away. Last thing I want you to see, the seventh thing, comment from John on the cross. The cross invites all people to God's grace. Verse 32 and I, I shall be lifted up from the earth, will draw all, A-L-L, men to myself. The cross is an invitation not to the, just the Jews for their Messiah, but as an invitation to all men. When I am lifted up, all men will be coming. And here we begin the story with the Greeks going to the the Greek-named disciples asking, hey, is there any chance we could get an audience with Jesus? And it ends by Jesus saying, my hour is here, and when my hour comes, it will draw all men to me. The cross is the strangest story, isn't it? That victory comes out of defeat. That life comes out of death. That salvation comes out of condemnation. It's the strangest story. And yet it's God's way. It's the only way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes not just the Jews I will draw all men to me whoever believes will have 
with the seed planted in the ground that comes to life forever life. Where are you in this story? The king has his crown. He's enthroned on the cross. And John gives us seven new ways to look at the cross. But I like the last one the best. It invites everyone to God's grace. Do you need that invitation this morning? And do you realize that the cross is either your hour of glorification or your hour of judgment? That the cross is a dividing point for all humanity. Will you come to the Messiah on the cross? Will you call him Lord? Will you not miss the moment and the message of the Messiah? Have you seen the cross with new eyes? Have you heard the message with new ears? Let us pray. Oh God, if there's anyone here in this room or anyone watching by, by way of television, for them this would be their moment to come to the Christ at the cross, to realize that they too want to be planted as the seed in the ground to bring forth life forever. Maybe there's someone for whom this is her day. This is his day to call Jesus Lord. Maybe there are others here hearing the proclamation of the gospel. This is their day to come and be a part of a church that proclaims the way of salvation through the death, the glorification, the enthronement, the hour of our Christ. Amen. If you're here this morning and it's your day of decision, I will be here at the front for you. Our hymn of invitation is 481. Stand together as we sing, 481. I'll meet you at the front.